you love the Lord of the Rings? Doesn't everyone? Do you love systematic theology? Of course! Then today's book is perfect for you. Hi, my name is Terence and I'm your host for Reading and Readers, a podcast where I review Christian books for you. Today, I review Tolkien Dogmatics, Theology Through Mythology with the Maker of Middle-Earth by Austin M. Freeman, 432 pages, published by Lexham Press in November 2022. It's available in Amazon Kindle for $19.99 and Logos for $23.99. Now, I don't know much about Austin M. Freeman other than what is in Amazon, and Amazon just has one line. All I know is that he is a lecturer at Houston Baptist University and is also a classical school teacher. And he also has a PhD from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, which explains a lot because a certain Professor Kevin Van Hooser is also from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. But we will come to that in all good time. Today we are talking about Tolkien, a man who really needs no introduction. He launched the fantasy genre, Dragonlance, Forgotten Realms, Game of Thrones, and many more fantasy novels could be blamed or traced to J.R.R. Tolkien. He is the author of The Lord of the Rings, a trilogy of books that Peter Jackson directed into a trilogy of movies. That worldwide success soon led to the filming of another Tolkien book, The Hobbit, which is only one book which Jackson stretched into a trilogy of movies. And last year, Amazon launched Rings of Power, a very expensive TV series that is based on The Lord of the Rings. Now, why is it that The Lord of the Rings, a book series that began in the 1930s, has so captured the imagination of readers and viewers around the world, across generations. This book could be your great-grandfather's favourite book. So what's so great about it? Is it the plot, the characters, the world-building? Tons of ink has been spilled over decades, analysing the film from all angles. And tons of money has also been spent trying to figure out how to replicate uh, its success. But maybe, just maybe, the reason why Tolkien's world of Middle-earth is so lasting is because it has so much resonance. Maybe there is something in that mythical world that perks up the realities of this present world. The reason Middle-earth pulls us in is because we are, by virtue of how God made us, attracted to truth. Truth with a capital T. Now, today I'm not reviewing Lord of the Rings by J.R.R. Tolkien. I am instead reviewing Tolkien Dogmatics by Austin M. Freeman. And this is how the book's description begins. I quote, J.R.R. Tolkien was many things. English Catholic, father and husband, survivor of two world wars, 
Oxford professor and author, but he was also a theologian. Tolkien's writings exhibit a coherent theology of God and his works, but Tolkien did not present his views with systematic arguments. Rather, he expressed theology through story. End quote. And that is the premise of this book. Uh, Tolkien is a public theologian conveying theology through story. Freeman has scoured the literature. His gaze has pierced books, letters, talks, and journals to reconstruct Tolkien's theology into a systematic form. And when I say systematic, I mean systematic in the technical, theological, seminary textbook sense, which you will see. The structure of this book um, begins with a chapter titled Prolegomena, which is what you will see in every systematic theology book, that presents the background, scope, use, and methodology. Then we have chapter 1, God, chapter 2, Revelation, chapter 3, Creation, 4, Humanity, 5, Angels, 6, The Fall, 7, Evil and Sin, 8, Satan and Demons, 9, Christ and Salvation, 10, The Church, 11, The Christian Life, and lastly, chapter 12, Last Things. So going from God, Revelation, Creation, to The Church, The Christian Life, and The Last Things. Now these are chapter headings that you would expect to see from a systematic theology textbook. So when I first saw this, I eagerly anticipated how Freeman would fit the Lord of the Rings universe as well as other writings of Tolkien into these categories. <laughs> I thought that would be a very uh, exciting thing to read. Um, but before I go into the, into the review proper, uh, let me just um, finish up on the structure. Because the book ends with a couple of other resources that you might like. We have a glossary of names and terms from Tolkien's fiction, just in case you don't know who are the Valar. Uh, and they are the angelic rulers of the world, or you don't know who are the Mayar. I hope I pronounced that right. Uh, the Mayar, they are the lesser angelic spirits. But of course, everyone knows that Saruman, Gandalf, and the Balrog that Gandalf fought in the mines of Moria, that they are all Mayar. Uh, <laughs> I'm joking, I didn't know that before I read this book. In fact, there was a lot of things I didn't know about Lord of the Rings before uh, I read this book. I only, um, hmm, I only, read, I only watched the movies uh, and I only read The Hobbit, but I have not actually, uh, I confess, I have not actually read The Lord of the Rings, the book itself, the books itself. Now, before you throw this uh, podcast away in disgust, um, let me just continue on. <laughs> and perhaps there's something that you will enjoy from today's podcast. Um, we have also, other than the glossary, we have a bibliography, which is divided into two sections. Tolkien sources, nearly 16 sources from Tolkien's own words, sometimes edited by his uh, son, or oh, his grandson, uh, Christopher Tolkien. And the secondary sources, where we have more than 200 sources from scholars, mostly on things Tolkien, but sometimes these sources are on theology, apart from Tolkien. So he will refer to uh, Thomas Aquinas uh, and, uh, and other uh, theologians. So 
That's the bibliography. And uh, lastly, no self-respecting textbook on systematic theology would be without indexes. We have a name index, we have a subject index, and also the scripture index. And that ends the entire book. Now that we understand how the book is laid out, I want to spend some time challenging the entire premise of the book. <laughs> systematic theology textbooks exist because we want to know what does the Bible say about specific categories or uh, headings about God, creation, sin, man, Jesus, salvation, Holy Spirit, end times, and so on. So I would normally, uh, to find out these things, I would read Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology or Milad Erickson's Christian Theology or Herman Baving's Reformed Dogmatics to better understand, let's say, Jesus Christ. I will know Baving's conviction because he tells me directly what he believes in his book, Reform Dogmatics. But it's not so straightforward with Freeman's book. I read this book to know Tolkien's conviction, not through Tolkien's direct thoughts on these topics, but mostly through Freeman's compilation, selection, and stringing together of Tolkien's writings. Most of them are fictional. Now, this is an audacious task. Perhaps this is an everyday task for the literature critic to reconstruct the man or woman behind the book, but I would be very careful to reconstruct J.K. Rowling's faith from the Harry Potter series or draw a line from the religious zealots in, let's say, Battlestar Galactica to the personal faith of the creators of that show. So how far can we take Freeman's premise? That first, we can know Tolkien's belief from his stories and also letters. Uh, and second, that by doing this, we can know God. For knowing God is the ultimate purpose of systematic theology. Freeman takes this challenge uh, to the premise seriously. In the Prolegomena, there is a section titled Scope and Use of this Book and Methodology. I suppose reading them, um, I think the critical difference between J.K. Rowling and Battlestar Galactica versus uh, J.R.R. Tolkien and The Lord of the Rings is simply this. Tolkien's faith explicitly, uh, should I say explicitly or implicitly? Hmm, it's quite difficult to say. Um, but Tolkien's faith undergirds Middle Earth. Tolkien believes that God is the creator and that men are created in the image of God, therefore we are sub-creators. And there is a uh, responsibility in that role. Tolkien's faith is real. It is true. It corresponds to reality. And that is why when he writes, uh, his underlying faith has resonance with readers and viewers in the real world because it corresponds to reality. So, in a strange way, in a remarkable way, his elves and orcs makes our present reality more real. Let me quote Freeman. Many critics have tried to account for the effect a good story has on us with terms like literary belief or willing suspension of disbelief. But Tolkien demurs. 
we instead become successful sub-creators, making a secondary world that other minds can enter into. There are then things which are true within that world, that is, which accord with its laws. That is why we believe it when we are inside it. End quote. Now, as I read the book, I continually ask myself whether we could apply the methods Freeman uses here to Greek or Norse myths or fantasy, other fantasy or science fiction stories. Now, if you want to go in-depth into the methodology, Freeman states up front that he does not have the space to explain, but he invites readers to read Kevin J. Van Hooser's book, his old professor, uh, the book, uh, Is There Meaning in This Text? And uh, knowing that he comes from that school, that he has uh, referenced uh, Van Hooser, uh, I kind of know where he's coming from. Uh, I have actually reviewed a different Van Hooser book, Everyday Theology, How to Read Cultural Texts and Interpret Trends, which you can check out in episode 50, which explains a lot how, I'm, how he wrote this, how Freeman wrote this book, and how I'm reviewing uh, this book. <laughs> now, let's, let's move on. Now, assuming that you can for the moment accept the premise and purpose of the book, let's go to a rather revealing chapter, chapter 2. Let me read the second paragraph of this chapter. I quote, This chapter will be broken down into two major sections based on these divisions. We will first deal with general revelation, here with how much Tolkien believes pagans might know of the true God apart from scripture, we will next address Tolkien's views on special revelation in Scripture and his attitudes toward the Bible, then specific extraordinary revelations such as dreams and visions, and finally his views on the quotes uh, or brackets, uh, perhaps, uh, un uh, how do I say this? And finally his views on the quote unquote perhaps supernatural provenance of his own work, end quote. So, so there is this, this part over here that is sensational because um, Tolkien uh, kind of believes that there is a divine hand in the writing of his stories. So that's a bit sensational, so I'm going to go right there and uh, read the section at length, all right? Because I think that is the most interesting one. That also sheds quite a lot of light for the entire book and how we... And, and just just fascinates me, all right, as, as you will see in this review. Let me quote the section at length. This section explores Tolkien's views on one aspect of an extra-canonical special revelation addressed to the world his own writing. While grading student exams one day, Tolkien wrote down 10 fateful words without any clear meaning behind them. In a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit. Whence did this sudden impulse come? Tolkien seems to have explicitly admitted he believed his work to have been inspired in some sense. In a letter from 1971, two years before his death, he recounts a strange visit. A man had come to see him with some old pictures which seemed to have been made to illustrate the Lord of the Rings ages before it was written. The man wanted to know whether Tolkien had drawn inspiration from such images. When Tolkien revealed he had never seen them before, 
the meeting took a strange turn. His visitor asked him whether he believed he had really written the whole work on his own. No, Tolkien had answered, not anymore. Tolkien then tells his correspondent, this is in the letter, that he has never since been able to believe that the Lord of the Rings was purely his own invention. Recognizing that this is a somewhat alarming and possibly arrogant conclusion, he reasons that God, after all, uses quite imperfect instruments all the time. And this is a long section, yeah, so I'm quoting at length. I'm still quoting at length, all right, so about this... Uh, so uh, Freeman continues here. Uh, we must make clear. Okay, I'm quoting. We must make clear from the outset what Tolkien did and did not believe here. He did not believe his fiction was true in the primary world. Okay, the real world. Though he did believe it was not entirely false. He did not believe he was writing scripture or some special basis for a new religion or teaching. He did not believe his work ought to be considered quote-unquote, inspired in the same sense as the Bible or the church's teaching. But he did seem to eventually believe that he received large portions of it from God by the ministry of angels operating on relatively normal authorial processes. That is, not by means of an Islamic angelic delivery, but in a more subtle and synergistic manner, end quote. Now, just to make it clear here, uh, Freeman understands that the authors often describe the creative writing process by saying, the characters have a life of their own. The story wrote itself. I mean, these sayings are said so often that it's become cliche. But this does somehow match with Tolkien's experience and more. Uh, Tolkien says, I quote, uh, from Freeman's book here, Tolkien says he no longer invents, but instead waits until he seems to know what really happened. This sort of independent development is a large impetus for his conclusion that parts of the story seem revealed through him rather than by him. He deliberately chose to work with archetypal, okay, archetype uh, motives and sometimes characters intrude out of narrative necessity. But he describes the full characterization of Aragon in tones of awe as a revelation. End quote. End quote. Now, I'm still fascinated by this idea of theology through mythology. I just can't let, let this thing go. And <laughs> just to add more fuel into the fire, if we take Tolkien's impressions of divine revelation seriously, then we are compelled to ask, do we listen to Tolkien as a prophet? <laughs> and I just want to say very quickly now that both Tolkien and Freeman strenuously deny writing scripture. Okay, Neither of them are claiming that Tolkien does so. But... Can we ask, is it proper to credit God as the writer's muse, the writer's inspiration? Bavink never suggested that the hand of God was on him while he was writing Reformed dogmatics, at least not as far as I know. On the other hand, many are convinced that the hand of God was indeed on Handel when he composed uh, the Messiah. So let us, um, just for a moment, uh, Consider or accept that God intended Tolkien to write Lord of the Rings for God's own divine purpose. 
Now, just saying that God intended for this to happen is true. For, and that is true for any author, Christian or not, for any piece of literature, fiction or not. But let us just say that God intended something special for Tolkien and the Lord of the Rings. Hence why Tolkien felt that the story was revealed through him rather than by him. So what is this divine purpose? What is this divine purpose that maybe we can tease out and speculate on? Okay, This is purely speculation and this reflection. I take my cue from what one Tolkien scholar quoted in this book, uh, Claudia Testi said. I quote, Tolkien's characters live in a world that is chronologically pre-Christian, but metaphysically Christian. That is, he has sub-created a fictional world in which Jesus Christ will one day become incarnate. End quote. Hmm. This got me thinking, where do myths come from? From a Christian point of view, all myths are man-made. I mean, they're not real. They are fictional. They are stories. They are not materially real, physically real. We will never dig up the bones of a Medusa or a Pegasus or a fairy. Men, as sub-creators, have created these stories, these myth, myths. So we Christians recognize many or all of these myths as pagan, non-Christian. They convey a belief that is antithetical to the faith. If we wanted to be even harsher, we could say that they are lies inspired by the father of lies. On the other hand, <laughs> if, and this is a big if, if God positively wills Tolkien to write The Lord of the Rings, then we have a sense that myths can be good even if they are not real, that they convey truth even though the people never existed and the events never happened. So how can something be true yet never happen? Well, we can think about the parables. The parables in the Gospels are not materially real. They are not physically real. We will never dig up the remains of the prodigal son or the Samaritan man or the sower. But the parables powerfully convey truth. So where does that leave us? Is God speaking truth through Tolkien to us? Now, I found a solution to this question uh, in a roundabout way, which is quite uh, appropriate because the entire project here is done in a roundabout way to, to know God. Um, so trying to understand how to receive the, this book, trying to absorb this book, I found the answer in uh, Tolkien, the Roman Catholic. First, I want to say that Freeman is very even-handed on Tolkien's Roman Catholic beliefs, even as Freeman uh, has clearly stated that he himself is a Protestant. Freeman doesn't shy away from uh, stating uh, his Roman Catholic doctrine because it is a necessarily important part of Tolkien's conviction. You cannot separate the man here from his Roman Catholic faith. We can see his devotion um, of, to the Roman Catholic faith in his marriage, in his parenting, and his letters, and, and so on. So, although Tolkien never speaks publicly as a theologian, 
Professor Tolkien of Oxford University has clearly thought deeply on his faith and is not shy on expounding on them on specific occasions. Tolkien rejects the worship of Mary, but still insists that she was sinless and ascended to heaven. He believes that the Roman Catholic doctrine of the Eucharist, or what we know as the Lord's Supper, which is the bread transforms into the body of Christ and the wine transforms into the blood of Christ. And while Tolkien remains friends with C.S. Lewis and the Anglican and also other Protestants, uh, he truly believes that the Roman Catholic Church is the one true Church of Christ, if only his friends would come to their senses. So I commend Freeman, the Protestant, for not feeling the need to educate the reader on the errors of the Roman Catholic Church. <laughs> uh, if there are any Roman Catholic uh, Christians uh, here, then you might be very uh, put off by what I just said. <laughs> but let me before you throw away the, your, your phone, uh, let me just continue. Freeman trusts readers to know enough of the difference between the two beliefs and... Um, so and he doesn't make it a big fuss, okay? Trying to correct any thinking in that sense. So that makes this book a comfortable read for both Roman Catholics and Protestants. So Roman Catholics, you can read this book. So uh, unless, of course, you're a Roman Catholic who wish Freeman wrote more positively of uh, uh, Tolkien's faith, or you are a Protestant who wish he wrote more negatively and uh, corrected. Uh, what are the errors here? If you are thinking that way, you will probably be disappointed because Freeman doesn't go uh, far enough. The good news is that once Freeman presents these uh, Roman Catholic doctrines, then it's easy for me and I hope for you to think about how to receive this book of derived systematic theology and also how we can think about Tolkien's musings that the stories were revealed through him rather than by him. Now, it's obvious when I say it, when I tell you the solution, and it is actually a repetition of what has been said before, but this is the way to read this book. We should not read Tolkien or Tolkien's dogmatics to establish our faith. We can learn from him, we can learn from what he wrote, because he wrote as a Christian. His faith has informed his fiction, and Tolkien has bluntly said so in interviews. What this book shows us is that some men are gifted sub-creators, and that is no surprise. The Egyptians, the Greeks, Indians, and Chinese have their own creation origin stories of how the world began, of who the gods are, and so on. And these stories came about to fill the gaps on what they didn't know of the one God, the true God, and his creation. In fact, even within the Christian church, there are still people who are creating sub-Christian beliefs, creating nonsense, uh, creating fiction, contrary to the truth, making things up to make things better, to make things clearer, to make things more convenient, and so on. So all that is happening because men are sub-creators. We create things. Now, contrary to Tolkien, so Tolkien uh, looks at his role differently. Freeman quotes Priscilla, Tolkien's, Tolkien's daughter, who describes her father's belief. I quote, Without our lives being seen as a journey to God, our artistic or other talents will come to nothing. End quote. So in medieval Middle-earth, 
we see a modern-day myth in the making. Tolkien's myth informs us and was informed by revelation, the biblical revelation. In knowing God, God the Father, who will send the God-man into the future, uh, in, in this uh, Middle-earth, okay, so Christ has not appeared yet, but Christ will come, Tolkien has created a world that coexists with what the Bible says. And, it, and in this sense, it is fascinating how the story, the people, and the events in Middle-earth sheds light on that revelation. Okay, so its base is built on that revelation and it shines light on what it stands on. So, for example, right, have you ever read any systematic theology which considers humanity? Okay, this is anthropology, biblical anthropology, but considers humanity in light of elves, men, hobbits, dwarfs, and orcs. Are orcs innately sinful? meaning that there is no hope of redemption? That's a theological question. <laughs> Even though it's a fictional universe, but it, it, poses, it asks us to think about the nature of sin. Interesting, isn't it? And the, and, and the nature of being human. Okay? Or let me, let me give another one. Have you read anywhere, in any book, a chapter on angels, Christian angels, talking about angels and then... In the same uh, page, you have a comparison of Gandalf and Sauron. Have you studied temptation from the perspective of Frodo, Galadriel, Bar Boromir, and Gollum? How they failed and triumphed when they were tempted by the One Ring. One Ring to rule them all, One Ring to find them, One Ring to bring them all, and in the darkness, bind them. And the curious side effect of this of, of writing fiction is that because it is fiction, Tolkien is free to speculate on angels and demons, heaven and hell, without having to run the theological gauntlet. He doesn't have to justify this, explain that, proof text this and that, because he is writing fiction. He tells everyone he's writing fiction, but it's still within this Christian framework. So I thought that was very interesting. And all that actually leads me to the question uh, that some of you may be asking, uh, that is, who is this book for? If you don't feel a thrill in your heart when I mention Hobbits, Gandalf, Gollum, and the One Ring, then this might not be the book for you. Let me explain. Some of you might look at the cover of this book and think, hmm, I know a guy who loves Lord of the Rings. He is not a Christian. Maybe after reading this book, he will be more willing to consider the Christian faith. Nope, that's not going to work. The idea is good, but not with this book. Not a book on systematic theology. You might want to try that, try your idea, with another book. Walking with Frodo, A Devotional Journey Through the Lord of the Rings by Sarah Arthur. I never knew this book existed until Freeman cited it here. In fact, I never knew there was so much research, so many books, so many journals, so many articles uh, talking about all things Tolkien until I picked up Freeman's book. There is a huge list of uh, 200 plus references, as I mentioned before. Now, on the flip side, just now I was talking about a guy who loves Lord of the Rings, but is not a Christian. Now, on the flip side, 
Some of you may know someone who loves theology, systematic theology. She just goes on and on about Augustine, Bavink, and Calvin. And you may be thinking that you want to show her uh, and hopefully let her have a love for Aragon, uh, Bilbo, and Saruman. And maybe this book, this uh, Tolkien's Dogmatics, is a good fit for a lover of theology. Nope, that's not going to work. <laughs> In this book, Freeman freely assumes that you already know the main story. You know the people, the significance of the ring, and he spoils the ending every few chapters. <laughs> so this is not really something that you want to give to someone who has not read uh, Tolkien's stories. If you want them to fall in love with Tolkien's stories, you have to get them to read the stories. <laughs> or you could try getting them to watch the Peter Jackson movies. Now, if the movies can't pull him or her, I just don't see how this book can. Unless your friend is someone like John Piper or some really serious theological geek that goes wild-eyed at the prospect of reading another book on theology. Ideally, this book is for those who love theology and Tolkien, the one who needs to be validated in their love for both, to read what Freeman writes here and then to give thanks, saying, I knew that there was something really deep and spiritual about Lord of the Rings, but I just couldn't put my finger on what it was. Now, let me end this review with this quote from the book. All right. So in this quote, we have a Freeman writing and later he uh, quotes from Tolkien. So I quote, Tolkien also offers a picture of the new heavens and the new earth in his own poetry and prose. He is, in fact, at his most eschatological and biblical when he writes of an eagle that sings a hymn over the rescued city of Minas Tirith. It is here quoted in full with biblical allusions footnoted. So I'll skip the biblical allusions. I'll talk about them later on. But uh, let me now quote from Tolkien. And the shadow departed, and the sun was unveiled, and light leaped forth, and the waters of Anduin shone like silver. And in all the houses of the city, men sang for the joy that welled up in their hearts, from what source they could not tell. And before the sun had fallen far from the noon out of the east, there came a great eagle flying, and he bore tidings beyond hope from the lords of the west, crying, Sing now, ye people of the Tower of Anor, for the realm of Sauron has ended forever, and the dark tower is thrown down. Sing and rejoice, ye people of the, of the Tower of Guard, for your watch hath not been in vain, and the black gate is broken." and your king have passed through, and he is victorious. Sing and be glad, all ye children of the West, for your king shall come again, and he shall dwell among you all the days of your life, and the tree that was withered shall be renewed, and he shall plant it in the high places, and the city shall be blessed. Sing, all ye people." End quote. And Freeman's footnote over here, and there are numerous footnotes, every, every sentence, traces the eagle's hymn to multiple scripture references, such as, I give you just one, Revelation 22 verse 5, where it says, 
and night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. So, sing and be glad, all ye children of the West, for your King shall come again, and he shall dwell among you all the days of your life. Hallelujah. This is a Reading and Reader's Review of Tolkien Dogmatics, Theology Through Mythology with the Maker of Middle-Earth by Austin M. Freeman. 432 pages published by Lexon Press in November 2022. It's available in Amazon Kindle for $19.99 and Logos, and in Logos for $23.99. And the next book I will review is by Dr. Stephen Nichols. For Us and Our Salvation, The Doctrine of Christ in the Early Church. It's the free book from Faith Life, and it's only free, uh, freely available in January. So you can read it along with me, or you can listen to my review first. Until then, bye-bye.